This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Li Pingchen, your host for today's episode. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Zhao Dianchen about his new book, Malaysian Crossings, Place and Language in the Worlding of Modern Chinese Literature. This book was published by Columbia University Press in 2022. Malaysian Chinese literature, or Mahua literature, is marginalized on several fronts. In the international literary space, which privileges the West, Malaysia is considered remote. The institutions of modern Chinese literature favored mainland China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. Within Malaysia, only texts in Malay, the national language, are considered national literature by the state. However, Mahua authors have produced creative and thought-provoking works that have won growing critical recognition, showing Malaysia to be a laboratory for imaginative Chinese writing. Highlighting Mahua literature's distinctive mode of evolution, the writer demonstrate that the grasp of their marginality in the world Chinese literary space has been the impetus for rather than a barrier to aesthetic inventiveness. He foregrounds the historical links between Malaysia and other Chinese-speaking regions, tracing how Mahua writers engage in the worlding of modern Chinese literature by navigating interconnected literary spaces, focusing on writers including Lin Santian, Han Suying, Wang Anyi, and Li Yongping, whose work crafts signature literary languages. Chen examines narrative representations of multilingual social realities and authorial reflections on colonial Malaya or independent Malaysia as valid literary terrain, delineating the inter-Asian crossings of Mahua literary production. It could be physical journeys, interactions among social groups, and mindset shifts from the 1930s to the 2000s. He contends that New perspectives from the periphery are essential to understanding the globalization of modern Chinese literature. 
by emphasizing the inner diversities and connected histories in the margin. Malaysian Crossing offers a powerful argument for remapping global Chinese literature and world literature. So this is a brief introduction about the book, and now let's hear it from the author. Zhao Tian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ping, for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here. So hello, everyone. Again, my name is Zhao uh, Tian Chan. I'm from the Department of Chinese Studies at the National University of Singapore. My research interests include uh, modern Chinese dinosaur literatures, Southeast Asian studies, and diaspora studies. So besides the book that we're going to talk about today, for which Li uh, Ping has given a really extensive uh, synopsis, uh, my work has also appeared in journals uh, such as Modern Chinese Literature and Culture and Prism Theory and Modern Chinese Literature. So for listeners who are interested in Chinese and Sinophone literary production beyond mainland China, I would highlight the special issue of Prism on the world of Southeast Asian Chinese literature, uh, which I co-edited with Carlos Rojas at Duke University in late 2022. So lastly, as a literary translator and editor, I have worked with Renditions, a Chinese-English translation magazine. All right. Thank you, Chao Tian. And then we are so looking forward to discussing your book. But before that, we want to hear a little bit about how you start this project and any of the inspiration or anything you'd like to share with us the start of this project. Sure. So the short and banal answer to this would be this project began as a PhD dissertation, as most of us would because it's a first book. And looking back, I feel uh, extremely fortunate that my application to grad school in the U.S. encountered this significant moment when the signable concept uh, created spaces in the field of modern Chinese literary studies in North America uh, so that we can study analytic literary formations beyond mainland China. So perhaps Li Ping actually we came up from the same moment of graduate school training. So it was really a matter of timing, isn't it? And I'm very grateful for the chance to undergo training at the U.S. But the longer answer relates to actually an even earlier period of my personal and professional trajectory. I wanted to study Singapore and Malayan slash Malaysian Chinese literature at a deeper level uh, because of my earlier vocation in Singapore as a Chinese language teacher and national curriculum planner. So prior to graduate school in the U.K. and the U.S., I taught Chinese language and literature to teenagers and engaged in the making of elementary school Chinese language instructional materials at the national level for almost six years. The two jobs made me realize how ignorant I was about Singaporean and Southeast Asian Chinese and Sinophone literature and culture. Given that the local Chinese language education here in Singapore focused more really on the acquisition of functional proficiency, and when it comes to the literature subject, favored the selection of works from Greater China. So when I left the education service, my sense of inadequacy really, in part, led me to acquire and accumulate more knowledge during my post-undergraduate studies about the different facets of what we commonly here call, what we commonly call here in the region, Xinma and that is Singapore and Malayan slash Malaysian literature. Yeah, thank you, Chao Tian, for sharing with us the academic journey. And uh, you mentioned that, yeah, we were, um, we started the journey in the United States around the same time where the Sinophone education gathered more and more uh, 
uh, attention right. and also have a lot of the different uh, scholarship start emerging as well. And uh, I also want to thank you for sharing your personal experience and also interest as well, especially in terms of the teaching Chinese language and also do the curriculum planning as well. So uh, mm -hmm. with that, and then uh, thinking about the start of this book from the academic journey, but also in terms of this kind of personal experience, personal interest as well. And now, I guess one of the first question I want to start, I mean, about the book is the term Mahua, which actually I uh, mentioned a little bit in the introduction. And then, um, so uh, can you tell us a little bit about what is Mahua? And in your book, this is uh, Mahua literature. And uh, so Mahua literature, how does how should we situate and position this body of literary work, especially in connection or in confrontation with the Chinese literature and Malaysian literature? Right. So thank you, Li Ping. This is really an important question because I think to most of the, our colleagues in the field who don't quite pay attention to literary, Chinese language literary production outside mainland China, Mahua literature should be relatively unfamiliar to them still. So through the lens of the book, uh, I would say Mahua literature can be characterized as this Chinese language literary formation that lives with a condition of deep marginality. So thank you very much for actually reading out the book synopsis. And what I would add is that um, I also present in the book Mahua literature as a multi-scalar configuration. And by that, I mean uh, the crossings uh, theme in the book marks how Mahua literature embodies global, local, and other regional scales of literary interest as they interact at the same time. So it is important here to outline how Mahua literature is produced. So notably, uh, what I call a literary Malaysia or the literary space of Malaysia does not map completely onto geopolitical Malaysia. So literary Malaysia is actually this aggregated region that comprises primarily not just Peninsula Malaysia and East Malaysia, which is on the island of Borneo, but also on Taiwan, which has nurtured uh, a dazzling contingent of diasporic Mahua writers or naturalized since, since the 1960s. So we can then think of literary Malaysia as this space, perhaps, that maintains multi-directional historical connections with locales beyond its geographical shores, which would include even mainland China, Hong Kong and Singapore besides Taiwan. So from this perspective, I think Mahua literature reminds us that the borders of a literary space may extend beyond that of a nation state bearing the same name. So from another yet yeah, another perspective, figuratively speaking, we can see how Mahua literature engages modern Chinese literature, not from this satellite position, but from a position that generates its own configurations its own matrix of multiple centers and multiple margins within. So entwined with this varied combinations of center periphery relations, uh, as it overlaps with phonetic literary production in many other locales like what, uh, what I've mentioned earlier, Singapore, Taiwan, and China. So Mahua literature actually mediates different types of what I think of as trans-regional ties. So depending on a historical period and discursive context, and I think that's extremely important. Writers and critics frame Mahua literature differently. So Mahua literature can be treated as provincial, seen as a sub-national area of China in the earlier periods of 20th century, for instance, as national when it is seen as being part of uh, Malaysia, Taiwan, or China, or as supranational 
for instance, when uh, Mahua literature is involved as uh, part of Nanyang literature to refer to Southeast Asia. Yeah, and then I especially appreciate you highlighted this kind of multi-directional connection and also the transregional ties, especially this is beyond the nation-state borders. So this multiple regions that, that is sort of kind of distinter the uh, nationalist framework of literature and also it could be multi-center in this uh, terrain as well. So uh, with this, and especially also this body of literature, how it connect, but also uh, 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 challenges uh, the uh, the uh, national framework of Chinese and Malaysian literature. And now uh, we uh, want to hear a little bit about, you know, so in the beginning and uh, the, the history of Chinese people in Malaysia. So uh, this is about, I guess, the mobility of people and also diasporic community. But can you tell us a little bit about the history or the uh, culture of Chinese people in Malaysia uh, in the colonial time or also the post-colonial period as well? Yes, Li Ping. So I forgot to mention actually, to start, I really break down the term of our literature in the, in the previous section. Uh, so here I would just add that uh, the semantic unit of Ma in Ma'wa literature actually refers to both colonial Malaysia, which gained independence in 1957, as well as to colonial Malaya, its historical antecedent. So in addition, this Ma that stands for Malaya also indicates this strong popular aspiration after World War II for decolonized peninsula and Singapore reunified as a nation state. So that's actually the basic uh, uh, historical backdrop uh, to the to the book. And I think it's important to actually share this with the uninitiated. Mm-hmm. Um, from that, uh, Malaysia as a geopolitical unit, um, and just now I probably forgot to actually do this uh, groundwork and I'll share it now. Uh, it consists today of Peninsula Malaysia, also known as West Malaysia, and Malaysian Borneo, which is East Malaysia. So it is a multiracial and multilingual society whose ethnic composition, and the figures I have here is for 2021, um, 69.8% of Jibumi uh, Gutera, which is this category called Sands of the Soil, uh, that was created by the post-colonial state after 1963 to institute Malays and all indigenous peoples of the country as a group for preferential policy making. So we have 69.8 Bumi Putra in 2020, uh, 2021. And besides that, there's 22.4% of Chinese and 6.8% Indian. So as we can see, as this separate social category, the Chinese in Malaysia account for a minority, but at the same time, they are also a politically significant, scientific-speaking community that resides outside mainland Chinese state, Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan. And with regard to actually Chinese migration, there's a huge bulk of it, uh, I mean, uh, which is related to the book that came to Singapore and, uh, and, um, and Malay, the Malayan region in late 19th century and early 20th century. And um, most of them actually come from uh, the, the, the southeastern coastal provinces of China, which is Guangdong and Fujian. And we can talk about that more later uh, in the context of Chapter 1, Ling Fantian. Yeah, and then, yeah, thank you for uh, introducing this, especially you mentioned that the Chinese population in Malaysia is around 24-25%. And then, so, uh, thinking about this group of people and also their life and also their literary production um, in uh, Malaysia. And so, uh, with that, we will now be uh, thinking about the four writers that you analyze 
uh, the work that you analyze in your book. And first of all is the chapter one, and then this is about Lin Santian. And then um, uh, can you give us some uh, introduction about uh, Lin and also thinking about his novel as well. So in your book, you analyze uh, Nong Yan, and then mm -hmm. you argue that this actually prompts us to think about, to uh, recognize the different moments, different elements, different factors in the Chinese uh, overseas community. So it's not just one unified, but actually there are a lot of differences, uh, diversities or so. So uh, can you tell us more about Lin Santian? Sure. But leaving at one point, perhaps I would also enlisted uh, more impressions of uh, your reading of chapter one, but I'll begin by actually a short introduction of uh, Ling Tan Tian. So in the context of Sinophone, Singapore Malayan uh, literary history, he's best known as the writer who composed uh, Nong Yan, which is the earliest novel um, in, in, in the Sinophone, Singapore Malayan Chinese literary history. So his case study to me uh, brings out uh, the pre-World War II Mahua literary landscape into sharper focus uh, because it goes beyond the well-recounted examples of uh, figures like Hong Zunxian and Yi Fu. And his writing practice uh, uh, really began after he reached Nanyang and his immersion in the region's cultural environment closely resembled that of the Nan Lai Jia, who enlivened the fledgling Singapore uh, Sidephone literary circles in Southeast Asia. And this is the significance of the case study. As for his background, he was born in rural Zhejiang. And here, this is a significant point that we will later see because he does not come from the southeastern coastal provinces of Fujian and Guangdong. He was influenced by the Maypoth movement through returning university student to his home village. And then later, he moved to Hangzhou uh, to further his studies. As, um, I mean, not just to study really, but also to escape from an arranged marriage. And he, after graduating uh, in Hangzhou, um, mirroring this faith ideal of self-determination, he resolutely broke away from the marriage arrangements uh, permanently. And he traveled to Singapore in 1927 and left very soon to teach at a Chinese school on the east coast of today's peninsula Malaysia. His literary debut was in 1929, uh, but it was after his relocation to 1932 to Kuala Lumpur that he eventually settled down uh, to, to, to write more consistently in his free time. So the point to note here is that he was not a professional writer. A lot of, uh, I would say, a great majority of the Ma'a writers are not professional writers. So for Ling Tan Tian, um, except for a trip back to China to attend his father's funeral in 1935, as well as a hiatus during the Japanese occupation in the early 1940s, he was engaged with local Chinese education, writing to the rank of a principal of a local school uh, uh, till his retirement in 1954. So in the book, Nong Yan, uh, as what you have mentioned and alluded to, Li Ping, I contend that uh, it promises to reckon with the internal heterogeneity of overseas Chinese community uh, by fashioning the novel as a social allegory of the white Jiang Zhen, which is a minority category of Malayan Chinese that encompasses all non-Wujian and non-Guangdong migrants. So for readers who are unaware, I mean, as I've mentioned earlier, the Chinese and Malaya are largely migrants from the provinces of Wujian and Guangdong. So in, in the novel, uh, the tale which represents, I think, the social dynamics in the Mahua literary circle as well, suggests Ding Tantian owns suppressed status as a white young among southerner writers. So um, his 
some of his colleagues have written later on about his slightly broader face um, and how he spoke uh, Mandarin with a heavy Jiangzhe accent. So he really cut this strikingly different figure in the Nile literary field, uh, which, is, which was populated by other Wenzhen, other men of culture from Guangzhou and Fujian. And because Lin drew on his personal experience in Malaya for his writings, I would say it's not surprising that he would direct his authorial gaze to examine the circumstances of Wai Jiang Ren through uh, thick smoke. So just a short synopsis of, uh, of the novel, which uh, primarily uses third-person narration. It recounts the experiences of several new teachers while working at a local Chinese school in a town located on the east coast of Malaya. And conflict breaks out on many levels among women instructors, among, uh, between Indian and Chinese instructors, and well, which is all, I mean, over issues such as employment positions and pedagogical issues. Among principals, uh, among the principal teachers and board of directors over the degree of autonomy in school administrative operations, among board members and power struggle to pre preserve cliquish interests and between the teachers and students over disciplinary methods. So among these conflicts, and, and I don't know whether um, this registers with the only thing, the clashes between the mercantile local-born Chinese who control the school board of Hokkien-speaking directors and the migrant educators from China who have assimilated into Malayan society unevenly, I think uh, deserves uh, great critical attention. So because um, the depictions of their conflicts between this uh, uh, local-born Chinese who speaks Hokkien and the migrant educators from China, and in this case from the Jiangzhe region who does not understand uh, southern Chinese football language. Uh, the novel explores this uh, 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 conundrums, this predicaments of Wai Jiang Ren in this internally uh, divided Mahua community. And, and we see how uh, Mao Zedong and Li Mianzhi, the two Wai Jiang Ren protagonists, uh, and, and, and the, the difficulties in actually carrying out their teaching work uh, in, in the school. So we, I would say that the narrative uh, can be read as this tale about living in the margins of the dominant language of a specific place. So, I mean, we'll just stop here for the time being. I don't know whether you have any thoughts to share after reading the chapter. Yeah, because I think it's definitely, I appreciate you highlighting, especially this kind of like uh, marginality, and it could be multiple sense mm -hmm. of marginality. And for example, the Chinese community uh, in uh, Malaysia, but also within the Chinese community itself, they are also different, uh, as you mentioned, the kind of division among them. And mm -hmm. this division will lead to the confrontation as well. So I think the this uh, novel, especially the Wai Jiang Ren, to think about their experience and to think about those, uh, also the Chinese immigrants, but thinking about they are from the non-major destination, for example, Guangdong and Fujian. So I think this is definitely to think about uh, this uh, multiple sense of marginality and also how that uh, within the Chinese community itself, there are multiple layers of um, a division, if not confrontation between them. And I think another thing that you mentioned also is about the local-born Chinese as well. So this local-born Chinese might be having very different experience with these uh, Chinese migrants, and also in terms of their uh, contact and exposure to local culture will be different as well. So I think, yeah, these are some of the things that I'm thinking while uh, especially hearing uh, you are now talking about the uh, book as well. Yes, absolutely. Because I think um, in in the current 
state of scholarship. I don't know for your work on Taiwan whether this would uh, have uh, some kind of uh, uh, relevance as well. We often think of uh, both China and overseas Chinese communities as sort of this monolithic block. But I think if we go back actually into history, we will discover this really interesting internal inner fissions within uh, uh, what to the outside group would think of as a remarkably cohesive uh, overseas Chinese community, for instance, in this case. But actually it's not. And what I also want to say is that Nongyan, the novel, demonstrates how Malaya plays host to this regional tension that is displaced from China, which gets unfolded into local interests in Nanyang. Mm. And then this kind of intra-communal tension um, has not been sufficiently analyzed in our diasporic Chinese and Sinophone literary studies, but it has been dealt with actually in historical and anthropological research on uh, displaced Chinese communities, especially in Chinese language scholarship via the parameter called Fang Yan Chun, which has been rendered as, uh, translated as dialect group in existing literature. So in this way, by profiling the social world of a Sinophone literary site as the neglected resolution, um, the novel Nongyan really helps us to shift the analysis of global Chinese creative writings from cataloging new productive locations uh, to the scrutiny of internal inner diversities in each locale. Yeah, and then uh, by extension as well, because now we're talking about the uh, diversity within the overseas community, but also to think about, you know, as uh, China as a nation or Malaysia as a nation state, it itself is also, there's a lot of diversity as well, uh, ethnic diversity, linguistic diversity, cultural diversity as well. So I think this is what... Uh, this uh, book, Nongyan, actually got me thinking as well. So we are thinking, we are talking about overseas Chinese community, yes, but actually thinking about, you know, their uh, place of origin or where, you know, they call homeland, hometown. It itself is already also uh, diversified, although the uh, national narrative uh, might be very different. It might be sort of narrated or constructed as a unified uh, nation state. But as we can see in the case of the overseas community, we can also reflect on how that uh, national a narration about a cohesive a nation is being uh, coming into place. Yeah, right, absolutely. Yeah, and then so with that, and uh, so uh, uh, thinking about the writing in uh, here in different uh, 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 position within the communities, but also could be writing in different languages as well. And here mm. we will be moving on to the second chapter where you talk about uh, Han Suying, the writer. And then, mm-hmm. so uh, first of all, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about, about uh, the writer herself, and then later on also about her writing language. And then specifically, how this, uh, his choice, excuse me, her literary choice, this language um, um, sort of uh, uh, can break the linguistic divides and then also uh, connect to other different language in order to uh, participate in the project for nation building or place making. So just want to hear from you about Han Suin and also the uh, her choice of the literary language. Sure. Um, so Han Suin was this really colorful personality. And uh, if you have read the chapter, I'm sure you can sense it in, in, in um, fuller. So she's this Eurasian doctor uh, who traveled from Hong Kong to Singapore uh, to the Malay to Malaya in 1952, 
She's perhaps better known for her writings about China during the Cold War or her novel of Hong Kong, A Many Slender Thing, that was made into a popular a Hollywood film. So my chapter, um, chapter two, dwells into a neglected stage of her biography, which is her sojourn in Malaya and Singapore from 1952 to 1964. And this stage is really important because um, it was in Malaya that she uh, ended her um her physician practice, so she stopped being a doctor and became a full-time professional writer. So what I found incredibly interesting is how even all, even though all her writings um, were in English, in Malaya she was misunderstood as a Chinese language writer due to the translations of her literary works and her cultural advocacy for the Chinese educated. So one question leaping, I mean, for the first time when you just uh, saw the book perhaps, uh, browsing the contents, you might be wondering why I included an Anglophone writer uh, to uh, incite a book on uh, modern Chinese literature. And is this, this historical misunderstanding that is the premise uh, really of this chapter and I found this uh, really thought-provoking. So according to the scholar uh, Zhang Xinhong, it was the work of the literary translator Li Xinke, uh, Lai Xinko, an enthusiastic journalist from the Chinese press, uh, so, so uh, who translated her public speeches. Li Xinke translated her novels. So they co-created the popular misrecognition of her Tui as a, an author who wrote in Chinese. So this unique entanglement with uh, Maohua literary space uh, is actually seen especially in 1958 when the translation of a third novel uh, and the Rain My Drink launched uh, the literary arts of Singapore and Malayam book series, Xima Wenyi that was published by youth book company, Qingnian Shuqiu, which was well known for its commitment to nurturing Tadophone Singapore and Malayan literary works. And that veritably inducted Han Sui into the field of modern Mahua literature. So this, this At the Rain My Drink, after being translated, was the only novel selected for two cycles of the series, each with a dozen titles. So this cooperation of Han Sui into Mahua literary space coincided with a rising interest in Malayan content by local bookstores and publishers after a colonial ban of publications from China and Hong Kong in 1958. So her contact with Chinese school students and figures in the local Sinophone cultural circle acquainted her with the relative vibrancy of Mahua literary production, whereas her renown as this international best-selling writer uh, would have bolstered uh, the status of the youth book company's Malayan publication. So her dedication to novelistic writing intersected in this way, right, uh, with the Malayan scene's uh, enduring reverence for longer narrative form. Um, and it uh, inaugurated this book series that cultivated local consciousness and paved the way for longer works by writers uh, such as Miao Xiu, uh, Li Ruling, uh, etc., all of whom later become important figures in the Mahua literary space. So secondly, uh, um, so the first is actually the translation of her works which had great uh, influence. The second part is actually her cultural advocacy for Chinese-speaking Malayans uh, that were widely reported. So uh, even though both local Chinese and English literary constituencies were then not fully visible to reading publics, so hopefully introduced the effort of Chinese language sphere to the English language sphere through her public speeches, praising the former for mobilizing localized linguistic forms in literature to convey a distinctive stand of geographical and political uh, community. 
as she role models this right in her Malayan writing project, which exemplified her ideas about a method of emulating the localizing orientation of Chinese language uh, in Malaya. So against the backdrop of decolonization, she incorporated Malayan English into her novelistic endeavor, which yielded At the Rate My Brain, which was published, and the sequel, Freedom Shout Medica, unfortunately, which was unpublished, years before the Creole in Making was recognized as valuable for literary writing and social identity construction. So I would say that her literary practice demonstrated ways to decolonize English, especially to vernacularize English as an acceptable literary language for depicting Malaya. And the incredibly interesting point here is that she looked to Mapa literature for inspiration, which is another literary formation in the margins. And in so doing, uh, 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 formulated locally inflected English in her Malayan fiction project to reflect hybridized linguistic habits as a way to engage in placemaking and nation building. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, I especially appreciate you mentioning this, um, her practice for decolonize and also vernacularize uh, English, right? And then in a way that writing in the language, but also uh, to think about there may be different inflection with other language, different cultural that can be, you know, kind of represented or kind of different context that this particular literary language could have. And uh, yeah, so I was also thinking about uh, Han Suin and then also, as you mentioned, the inclusion or the recognition, or I think you also say misunderstanding of Han Suing as a Chinese uh, writer as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I think this is, there's kind of this kind of sense of irony here that including, mm-hmm. um, including uh, Anglophone writers in the Mahua literature, but also at the same time sort of undermining that uh, her uh, literary language choice. And as you mentioned, actually to study her English work, there's a lot we can talk about, the decolonization of English, vernacularized English, and but somehow through literature, excuse me, through translation, right? So this work, even though it's a translated text, but seems to kind of like uh, uh, receiving more attention than the original Anglophone text. So I think this is something I was also thinking about uh, when, you know, thinking about uh, Han Suing as a writers and then the uh, the uh, linguistic media especially for translation but also how do we sort of bring back this anglophone uh, layer anglophone original text in when we discuss Mahua literature yes maybe I'll just add a point of clarification yeah mm-hmm. I mean the original works by Hatuin were in English but the way that she was brought into the Mahua scene was actually through translation mm-hmm. and that actually speaks to uh, a, a way that I would say of other social and literary actors kind of expand the repertoire of Ma'a works mm. because uh, there was really, I would say, a, a, a relative shortage of works and bringing in translation of works from other languages into the Chinese language, I'll call it the repertoire of, of, of uh, Ma'a literary works uh, it's a way of sort of like expanding the corpus mm. and then uh, in some ways also accruing prestige to the, the uh, literary formation as well. Yeah, and I totally agree with you. And thank you again for emphasizing on uh, this is about the Chinese translation of her work. And I guess also another question I'm reading, I mean, not just this chapter, but also other parts of the book is also about the uh, linguistic diversity 
of Magua mm-hmm. literature, right? So yes, you know, this is about Chinese translation of her work, but maybe also we can uh, also think about her original, I mean, text in the English uh, language as well. So this is something that I'm just yes. uh, kind of thinking about, even though this is primarily because of the Chinese translation of her work, but I'm just thinking about, you know, this kind of like a uh, linguist diversities and yeah. especially given you know Malaysia colonial uh, history and the English is definitely I mean one of the languages there so yeah just something that I'm yeah. thinking yeah and uh, so with that so uh, we are talking about you know the Chinese and also Malaysian literary tradition uh, the English as a writing uh, a language as well and with all this different uh, connection, to cultures, to language, to literary traditions. And now we will be moving to the third chapter. And this chapter is actually about Wang Yi. And specifically, uh, you uh, analyzed her writing and especially uh, her, uh, her one of her work, Shangxin Taiping, as this kind of cosmopolitan vision as well. And also especially the language that she envisioned to be this kind of cosmopolitan vernacular of Chinese. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was wondering, can you start with some introduction about Wang Yi as a writer and also later on maybe talking about her cosmopolitan vision as well? Definitely, Li Ping. Yes, so when we talk about Wang Yi, I think the immediate association uh, as with China and more specifically um, Shanghai, right? So in this chapter, I want to highlight uh, a neglected part of her heritage. I mean, uh, through uh, her paternal uh, 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 site, which is to Singapore and Malaya, because her father, Wang Xiaoping, is actually, was actually born in Singapore. And, and he uh, went to China um, after... Uh, the Second World War uh, broke out uh, really to uh, help uh, to, to, to join this anti-Japanese uh, resistance cause. And then later on, when, when anti-war broke out, World War II broke out on a larger scale, um, she was unable to return and then settled down in mainland China. So with regard to actually Wang Anyi's uh, cosmopolitan vision, I think it's important to highlight uh, the historical juncture. And that is the 19th, the period from the mid, obviously mid 1980s to the early 1990s, and there was a time when actually she traveled uh, out of China first to um, the Iowa Writing Program with her mother, and then later on to uh, America, and then later on to to to, to Germany as yes, well. She has written about it, and in 1991 she traveled southward to Singapore, not only as a distinguished guest of literary events, um, but also as a route seeking descendant who visits her father's native land and the Malayan region, which uh, her father became familiar with through joining a roving drama company that put out anti-Japanese performances. And it is it was um, through that trip that yielded the novella Sadness of the Pacific, Shangxin Taipiyang, that's the focus of uh, chapter three. So in going back to that historical juncture um, in the 1980s and the early 1990s, um, why he was actually feeling rootless uh, because she was educationally disprivileged um, during the Cultural Revolution and she felt disconnected with uh, rivers and mountains as sources of a cultural identity. So she decided to embark on root-seeking endeavors on her own terms. And relating this to sadness of the Pacific, I think there's a really interesting notion that's recurringly expressed, and that is on a map, mainlands are also drifting islands. And here the Geographic equivalence evokes 
I think, and underlying narrative logic that's articulated differently across uh, Wang, Wang Anyi's uh, prior works that built up to Shangxin Taipingyang. So the novella echoes its screen narrative, which is this um, 1993 novel, Ji Shi Yu Xu Documentation and Fictionalization, which spins this uh, uh, quasi autobiographical tale about the narrator's maternal family lineage that originates in the uh, Mongolian steppes. So throughout the novel, Ji Shi Yu Xu while he interweaves the narrator's uh, genealogical investigation in the semi-arid landscape with a struggle to actually feel at home in Shanghai, which was once described as the solitary island Gudang, right, during World War II, where parts of the city were exempt from the Japanese occupation. So at one point, because of the linguistic barriers in communication and this overwhelming sense of existential rootlessness, the first-person narrator in Tishu Shuko compares a migrant family in Shanghai to an island. So in this way, we can see how Wang Anyi strings urban Shanghai together with places beyond the Great Wall and across South China Sea uh, to, to, to write fiction during the early 1990s that sort of conjugates her uh, simultaneous interest in global, regional, national, and local spaces of Chinese-ness and then embedding her different senses of marginality within. So we can see uh, cosmopolitanism at work here, um, uh, in my view. So by pronouncing this equivalence between uh, China, the continent, and Singapore, Malaya, the island, in the ending of Sadness of the Pacific, I would say, what is cosmopolitanism provincializes China, which she no longer sees as an exceptional place. Her portrayal of drift uh, in Sadness of the Pacific through depicting this ongoing flows of people among places where China only constitutes one station rather than an originary site for singular uh, departure. So that's the bit about her travels. And leaping a second part was actually about uh, her, her literary language, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, correct. Yeah. So along, at the same time, when she was um, traveling to different places in the world uh, during the 1980s and early 1990s, uh, I noticed that she was also trying to formulate uh, a distinctive li- literary language of her own. And she wanted to distance herself from her other root-seeking colleagues in, in China. She didn't want to write uh, the, the kind of opium party of Wang Shuo. She uh, uh, also uh, did not want to uh, uh, develop this kind of literary language that's been stocked in localism. So she prefers the Acheng kind of uh, expression where she, she felt was it was uh, really, uh, uh, she called it an abstract language, Chou Yuyan, a kind of meta-language that has the widest applications. So in this way, I characterize this linguistic medium, uh, her linguistic, her preferred linguistic uh, medium for literature as a cosmopolitan Chinese literary uh, vernacular, so by which I mean it's some kind of an all-purpose form of written language that's unbeholden to any social or local uh, constituency. So it aims to connect with the largest possible readership uh, that is uh, made up by Chinese people spread globally, and all of whom are bound by this common destiny of uh, shit. So I hope that is clearly being. Yeah, and then especially you are mentioning this, you know, the connection, right? To try to connect to different readership across, uh, uh, you know, 
border, uh, national borders, cultural borders, and then to reach as much as the Sinophone readers as possible. So I think definitely to think about, you know, how uh, one see his, uh, uh, excuse me, one see her work and also to want to kind of reach to readers in China, but also outside China and in different uh, Sinophone societies and Sinophone communities as well. Yeah, so she was really developing her own kind of baihua. So she was, I mean, in one interview she talked about how uh, 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 the language that she uses for uh, not just sadness of the Pacific, but also for utopian verses, which was written during the same period. Uh, as her baihua, she, she thinks that she wants to achieve a certain kind of linguistic transparency that would be uh, uh, intelligible to the widest possible uh, readership. And here I'll add, uh, um, an additional point, which is that uh, in my previous chapters on Lin Tian and Han Su Yin, I have also portrayed, uh, I have also positioned uh, the way in which they bring specificities or place settings into their literary languages as cosmopolitan as well. So it seems that there's kind, kind of a conflict on being kind of inconsistent because in the first two chapters, I emphasize uh, place uh, appropriateness, but in this one, I sort of uh, uh, relinquish uh, uh, that, that emphasis on place uh, specificity. But what I would say is that this contradiction can be resolved if we frame uh, Wahani's case as expanding the conceptual range of universal-minded literary vernaculars. So uh, uh, Wahani's, uh, this vernacular can be seen as cosmopolitan because it participates in creating and connecting multiple fact-specific cultures in a non-dominant fashion. Uh, which contributes to what the international literary language diversity without engaging in uh, domestication. So while local and regional literary spaces are free to uh, incorporate her narrative poetics, uh, which come from a more expensive literary place like China, right? The resultant poetics of local and regional literary spaces actually also travel. They move from Malaysia to other places such as Taiwan and Singapore. So uh, in this way, we can see this dynamic, a uh, 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 really mobile, moving ecology of intersecting centers and peripheries. Yeah, this kind of mobility, right? So the um, the mobility of the literary practice, the mobility of the language as well, and then also try to reach out to uh, readers across uh, national borders, cultural borders, linguistic borders as well. And uh, so we talk about Lin Santian and Han Suying and then uh, Wang Yi. And now we're moving to the fourth chapter. So this is about Li Yongping. And uh, so... Um, this is a chapter where, uh, you know, uh, we want, uh, maybe we should start with some uh, introduction about Leon Ping and also uh, some, uh, want to hear you talk about his um, um, proximity to China and then uh, especially in his literary writings. And this is probably a chapter Li Ping that would uh, pick your interest uh, the most because I imagine that perhaps the, the part that touches on Taiwan uh, would be of great, slightly greater interest to you. Yeah, so yeah, just definitely want to hear you and uh, share with our listeners more information. Sure. So uh, a bit of background information about Li Yongping. He was born in the late colonial Sarawak in 1947, and then went to Taiwan for tertiary studies when he was 20. And that was four years after the, uh, the Bornean region of Sarawak joined uh, the Malayan Peninsula to form independent Malaysia. So he had begun writing creatively in Sarawak and then subsequently anchored his literary career in Taiwan. 
where he settled down uh, eventually. So in terms of publication trajectory, his first collection of short stories entitled uh, The Vidalio Woman, La Tifum, still features Broadian settings, uh, and that was published in 1976. But after that, he gradually chose to leave uh, his native land behind, and his first novel, Tiling Twintio, published in 1986, won him a great critical acclaim in Taiwan's literary world, and draws readers into, and, and the book, I mean, the, the story draws readers into this tribulations of a timeless locale that bears only faint traces of its land of birth. So the fourth chapter focuses, uh, focuses on uh, Li Yongping's uh, writing practice in the 2000s, which returned to depict Borneo, because initially he had left the place behind. And in particular, uh, the chapter analyzes his two-volume novel, uh, Where the Great River Ends, and the bulk of the story is framed by an elderly narrator protagonist in Taiwan who writes about his past spent on a Southeast Asian island. And the novel focuses on the topography of Borneo primarily via the character Shao uh, Yong, Yong, the youth, who is the narrator's 15-year-old self as he joins this mixed ensemble of travel companions on an expedition along the river Tapuas in search of its source on the sacred mountain of Batu Tiban. So, in my view, uh, Li Yongping undertakes literary worlding through the novel in two ways, and, and, and it is here that we can see uh, the way that he orchestrates his relationship with China. So, first, by deploying the Chinese script to transcribe local and indigenous languages in Borneo, and second, by an elusive representation of native tribes on the island. So, I unpack the formal contention by comparing the original edition published in Taiwan to the Chinese uh, to the China edition published later. So the PRC edition comes with a preface Li Yongping wrote especially for his China audience, whom he calls uh, readers from my homeland, uh, In the preface, Li argues for what he called the cosmopolitan development of Chinese language, through his use of Chinese characters to transcribe local languages in broad new. So, um, in both editions, both PRC and Taiwan editions, his worldly of Chinese as a literary language underpins his novelistic representation of Borneo indigeneity, which was inspired by the flourishing of indigenous writings and studies in Taiwan since the late 1990s. And this part also engages in the dialogue with nativist Sarawak critics uh, on which write on the topic of whether writers can represent Borneo authentically. So it is in this sense and from this perspective that I position uh, uh, Li literary practice as a multi-directional one, a practice that reveals what I call, um, and you have actually uh, uh, shared it uh, in, in, in our uh, correspondence outline, this paradoxical proximity and distance from China at one, and the striking manner in which his self-positioning straddles both intranational and transnational concerns. Yeah, and then I think uh, you highlighted one very, uh, this kind of like a, a strong example is how he uh, refers to the Chinese reader, I mean the Chinese reader in the PRC as the uh, readers 
from the uh, readers in the homeland in Zuguo. So I think this is something that uh, to think about how he positioned himself in this kind of like relation connection with uh, China, but also think of how he positioned and represents the Borneo, the indigenous community, the languages and the culture, and also how this book is actually published in Taiwan first the uh, publication outlets and also the hub. So in terms of circulation and publication, I will say it's also a trans-regional intra uh, um, and national as well. So this is just something that I was uh, thinking about while uh, thinking about this kind of like, uh, not just his literary work, but also the context for circulating and also for um, uh, sort of a publica uh, publication as well. Right, absolutely. All right. I'm so glad that I'm so glad that you actually intuitively got uh, the, the the gist and the spirit of of, of this uh, chapter as well as actually the book. Please. Well, I mean, thank you for an amazing book. So, <laughs> I'm just happy to hear you talk more about it. And so we already talked about the four chapters, but uh, actually, when we are uh, preparing and scheduling this uh, interview, and uh, Chowton told me he's actually on several book talks already. And uh, so um, here, I guess, just want to hear from you a little bit. So now the book has been published uh, for some time, and then you have uh, given some book talks, receiving feedbacks, responses. So anything uh, you would like to share with us or any thoughts you have on uh, this uh, book project? Yes. So even though um, admittedly the topic uh, is rather dense, the book has been generally well received and I'm very uh, happy about it. And readers appreciate how I foreground uh, the fact that Mahua as a literary region produces not just remarkable tech, but also refreshing conceptual frameworks. Because uh, as we probably know, Li Ping, so this kind of a globalization approach to modern Chinese literature and literary history often foreground texts and events of marginalized uh, locales, but we tend to omit uh, what I think of as the lineages of local cultural thought and polemics that invigorate uh, place-based literary production. So besides imaginative texts, uh, Malaysian Crossings uh, also features significant local literary debates and discourses, and it is an approach that uh, that I adopted consciously to rectify the impression that Mahal literary space only produces uh, 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 thought-provoking, fun uh, narratives, and is actually an empty site devoid of its own interpretive ideas. So the, the fact is actually on the contrary, because uh, Mahal itself is this vibrant interpretive domain, which actively fosters connections between uh, uh, endogenous, uh, which is like site-specific, uh, frameworks as well as exogenous uh, 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 conceptual influences. So uh, the main example of the literary thought I introduced in the book is uh, Kim Chu's notion of the literary Galapagos archipelago, which uh, you probably read it in uh, mm -hmm. the introduction, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so specifically, this, this uh, literary uh, Galapagos unpacks this marginality that befalls all skills of Chinese literature. So, so, uh, when um, Kim Chu uses it to first position modern Chinese language literature uh, as this Galapagos archipelago of world literature. And then he describes literatures from Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Malaysia as the small island in this literary Galapagos he identifies. And lastly, he switches the scale of his view and it sets up modern Chinese language literature as this global backdrop against which uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong constitute uh, the small islands 
in the Galapagos archipelago and that is started from literature. Following from his logic, Singapore and Malaysia occupied even smaller islands in the Sinophone Galapagos, marking a condition that he describes as uh, quote unquote at the margins, uh, within the margins. Mm-hmm. So so this this example, I think, uh, with this example, I want to show how uh, uh, Mahua uh, writers and critics can also uh, uh, come up with uh, extremely thought provoking uh, literary thought as well. Yeah, and then, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, especially in the introductory chapter, you bring up uh, Angim Chu's kind of this kind of uh, uh, literary conceptualization about this kind of archipelago literary uh, production. And uh, in addition to the introductory chapter, well, you, the readers, you will get to see Wang Gimchu here and there in other chapters yes, as well. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so I think... Um, um, thank you for sharing and also for highlighting uh, the your inclusion of Angintru in the book in the analysis as well. And uh, talking about Angintru, and then uh, I was just wondering, you know, out of curiosity for some of the behind the scene questions. So this is a book project, and uh, again, congratulations on a great book. And uh, any material that didn't get to be included in the book, or um, Want to hear maybe some of the uh, most unexpected material that you encounter in the writing of this book, or the most interesting material that you encounter in the process of writing this book? Yes, living sure. I, w- I thought I would actually share uh, my research trips to the Hansui Collection uh, uh, at the Howard Goodlib Archival Research Center at Boston University because she's really this really extremely interesting character. I mean, if for some reason uh, intersects with your work, you should actually visit the archive as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you, I remember correctly, um, at that time when I visited uh, the archives in 2011, they had 127 boxes of materials. Uh, that's a lot. And that was Yeah, that's before. a lot. <laughs> that's a lot, right? And and that's before her passing in 2012. So I, I would think that after 2012, uh, uh, um, perhaps her descendants have uh, sent more materials and stuff for, for uh, archiving. So among the, uh, the materials I discovered were a set of papers called the Han In newsletter. So it turns out that every now and then, Han In would write to uh, um, private letters to a select group of friends, sharing her thoughts on her readings, her observations during her Malayan sojourn and her travels, as well as on current affairs. So it's this like free flow uh, kind of uh, exposition, uh, uh, including considerable gossip about people and mm-hmm. the times. And then using a concept that we're more familiar today, right? The newsletter, pra- a newsletter, this newsletter practice feels like keeping a private blog. You know, the kind of WordPress blog that you need. Uh, you need to type in a password before you can access the writings and materials within. And uh, the newsletters were actually all typed out. And then, then I learned uh, later that Hathuin had her, uh, got her secretary to do it. But I was thinking, how many Asian writers in those days, that was like in uh, 1950s, can't afford to hire a secretary to handle this day-to-day matters, right? And then that sort of offers an oblique education of Hathuin's financial status. Mm. Yeah, and then as you mentioned, this is, uh, I mean, from now, it seems like it's a teamwork, right? So Han Suin completed writing and things like that, and then there's yeah. a secretary, like, you know, typing this, uh, I mean, you know, into a formal setting and things like that in order to be sent out and, um, um, you know, the following other different things. So I think, yeah, to think about the, the writers, but also the context of the writing. 
who's actually doing the typewriting <laughs> as well. Right. Yeah, exactly. Who is the, the, there's some other labor that went into sort of uh, circulating her views, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, so what you say about the secretary, the, the I mean, the support team uh, for the writing also also reminds me of the Chinese translator of her work, even though, you know, they're not necessarily working together or so. But yeah, as you mentioned, there are some other forms of labor, might not necessarily be creative labor, but there are definitely people involved in here as the secretary, the typewriters, and also the translator, maybe also editor and publisher as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Sounds like the, the the work of actually the making of a literary celebrity is more than actually just the author that we think does the work, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah right. The making of the celebrity or uh, the the packaging or the marketing of their work as well definitely right. takes a team. Yeah. Right. Right. Oh, Lippy, if I may interject, I just remembered uh, about uh, another piece of interesting feedback I received of from course. my book talk mm-hmm. that, that I would. Uh, love to actually share with uh, your audience. Of course. So uh, so what came up during uh, a few Q&A sessions and some of the uh, written reviews that have uh, been published is how uh, Maha literature today does not appear to be marginal anymore, given the ongoing spotlight on literary formation, on the literary formation in academia, and how one of its most uh, accomplished writers, uh, Zhang Weixing, uh, has recently won the Newman Prize for Chinese Literature. And of course, there's been uh, ongoing uh, critical acclaim and market success of Li Zixu's uh, novel, uh, Land of Floating Customs, uh, uh, which is actually uh, uh, Nicholas Wong's uh, and HKU's translation of New Booty, not just in Malaysia, but also in mainland China. I'm not so sure about the reception in Taiwan. I'm, I'm maybe leaving you have heard some, uh, uh, a little about that, but in mainland China, it's tremendously successful. Mm. So uh, for me, um, in my view, there's a need to distinguish between sort of like the ad hoc attention and market success given to previously peripheralized literary formations such as Mahua and the uh, uh, continuing fragility of the cultural infrastructure that produces Mahua literature. So uh, uh, there's a continuing lack of uh, uh, support by the Malayan, uh, Malaysian state for Chinese language education. Uh, the spaces for the three publication in newspaper supplements are shrinking, and uh, the market for the three output in Malaysia itself is also diminishing. So all this hardly creates a sustainable balloon for Mahua literature to survive. I mean, and this accounts for the kind of melancholy that I described, uh, that that Ng Kim Chu has uh, uh, in, in my coda about how he thinks that all this is just ephemeral. Yeah, and then, yeah, I totally agree with you in terms of to see the rising attention, you know, the uh, more and more attention on this Mahua literature is whether there are uh, corresponding, you know, kind of supporting network and also supporting uh, a structure for the continuation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So then that thought, I mean, that thought came up to me because we were talking about uh, the other labor that went into the making of Han Suin as a celebrity author, right? So I, mm-hmm. I suddenly remembered how uh, our literature these days is seen as an important object of study, but at the same time, uh, we will say maybe behind the scenes or rather uh, the day-to-day uh, kind of cultural infrastructure that goes into producing a sustainable uh, uh, group of uh, people who continue to write our literature, that is actually still uh, uh, not very optimistic. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then I appreciate you bring up this uh, point, and especially I guess this will uh, um, uh, to some way I guess connected to uh, my last question, especially about uh, your next project. Is your next project uh, also about uh, Mahua literature, or what are you working on uh, right now? If you would like to share with us, definitely. So I'm actually now working on a short paper on. A thought-provoking resonance between uh Wang Yi and Bao Bao Hun, the doyen of modern Singapore theatre. Really, this this paper really uh, uh came out from my research uh, during my dissertation. So you can see how long I have been sitting with it. So so uh, in nineteen ninety one, as I've mentioned, Wang Yi travelled to Singapore and participated in activities organised through uh, various agencies such as the Singapore Cultural uh, Singapore Chinese Cultural Festival the World Language Book Fair, and then the 5th International Chinese Language Literary Forum. So she was there with uh, prominent colleagues uh, such as Long Yingtai, Zhu Tianxin, Zhong Xiaoyang, and Mo Yan. So in Singapore, she met with many uh, famous local Sanfu cultural figures, but she did not cross paths with Guo uh, Baokun. So what uh, 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 intrigues me is, despite the mis-encounter, they displayed remarkable thought convergence during the same period from the 1980s to the early 1990s on cultural marginality. So at the turn into 1990s, both uh, artists uh, contemplated the historical trajectories of impoverished sites of Chinese Sinophone culture. I mean, for Wang Yi, of course, it's China, and for Gobap, uh, it's Singapore. So on the one hand, Wang Yi reflected on how writers like herself may search in vain for cultural roots in the mainland geographical peripheries, and extended her observations to the displaced Chinese language in the Singapore uh, 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 Malaysian region. Wu Baokun noted out a hollowing of uh, the Singaporean national psyche due to alienation from ancestral homelands and the state's overemphasis on economic development. So, what is super uh, coincident and striking is how both Wang An Yi and Wu Baokun developed this resonant discourses of cultural marginality through this uh, contemplation on uh, being a cultural orphan, being an orphan, embodying this, what I think of as a common structure of feeling that expresses an ancient sense of solitude as China and Singapore both labored to carve visible positions for themselves on the world cultural map. Yeah, so this is actually just something small that I'm working on right now while I search for my second project. Yeah, that sounds like a great project. And then uh, we definitely are looking forward to reading more of your work in the future as well. And uh, Chao Ten, I just want to thank you for being on the show today. And then I really enjoy our conversation. Thank you very much, Li Ping. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. And hopefully your audience will enjoy uh, our conversation as well as the book. I'm sure they will. And I also want to thank the audience for staying with us to the end. I hope everybody's taking good care and see you next time. Goodbye.